0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hi,
1: everyone. Welcome to AUKUS Amplified. This is a production of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. I'm Dr. Kim Tucker, I'm an arthroplasty surgeon in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm here representing the Women in Arthroplasty Committee for AUKUS. Today, we're gonna have a two-part conversation. First, we are going to discuss what is now commonly referred to as Zoom fatigue. Secondly, and I think this ties in with Zoom fatigue, We will discuss pandemic fatigue and the associated stress and practice disruption that COVID-19 pandemic has caused in our personal and professional lives. We will then go over some strategies for management and self-care given this situation. I'd like to welcome our three guests today. Our first guest is Dr. Mari Ricker.
2: Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm an associate professor of family and community medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. And I'm also the director of integrative medicine in residency at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. And I spend quite a lot of my focus on researching physician well-being. Thanks for having me here.
1: Thank you for joining us. Our second guest today is Dr. John Shields.
3: All right, hey, how are you doing? I'm John Shields. I am an orthoplasty surgeon. I am a, I'm a Wake Forest Baptist Health. I am a, an associate professor. I am also a fellowship director. I am in the medical director. I am at Davie Medical Center, which is our joint hospital.
1: Great. Thanks for being with us today. Our third guest is Dr. Linda Suleiman. Good
0: afternoon slash evening to everyone. My name is Linda Suleiman. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon at Northwestern. I serve as the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Graduate
1: Medical Education, as well as Assistant Dean of Medical Education. Thank you for being here with us today. And thank you all for taking the time to talk with me. I also want to take a minute before we start our conversation to thank all of our listeners. Thank you for taking care of your patients and for showing up for them during this time. I know it's been really hard some days and sometimes scary, and I just want to acknowledge all that you have done over these long months. So thank you. Okay, let's get to it. As we have all said innumerable times at this point, and I would really feel like incomplete if I didn't use this word, but COVID-19 has led to an unprecedented situation within our healthcare system. It has led to a reorganization of our medical system with modifications to how we practice and where we practice. It has led to isolation in our personal and professional lives, and it has led to modifications in how we communicate. Most of our meetings have become virtual. Zoom, Google Meets, et cetera have been implemented to allow for meetings to occur without exposure and Zoom meetings are definitely different than in-person meetings. First, I wanted to ask you guys about how many hours you all spend on Zoom meetings per week.
0: Every morning conference is Zoom. So that's at least you know three hours a week or an early morning. All our resident education, fellow education has come to Zoom. And then meetings, both evenings, weekends. So I would say total, it's probably about five or six hours a week.
3: I might agree with that. I might say probably I might say six to eight hours. All of our joints conferences are over Zoom. I have uh, all of our grand rounds, all of our core education, and so I'd say yeah, you know, probably six to eight hours a week. And then our evening calls, you know, all of our have our executive council meetings. I'm everything has gone to Zoom now. And we just did our fellowship interviews and I am eight to ten hours a day straight. I am of Zoom wow. meetings. And so it's you know all gone that way.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I was in the same boat, about 10 to 15, but with our interview days, if I have two to three interview days, that adds in another 10 plus hours on Zoom a week. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about how much time we're spending on the computer.
1: So I read a tweet that an Italian management professor posted that I thought was interesting here. And it said it's easier being in each other's presence or in each other's absence than in the constant presence of each other's absence. And I thought that summed it up really well. And are you guys finding that it's hard to connect during virtual meetings or do you find that you're okay with it?
0: I think it really depends on what type of meeting it is. I think that from an efficiency standpoint, our meetings are well run. Even our resident interviews, there wasn't a minute we ran late between interviews. And I think a part of that is that you're not feeling that personal connection of that face-to-face. So where the conversations can, I think, really bloom from a personal standpoint, really is not there anymore. So I think that's what's cut out some of that chatter that you would otherwise have in catching up with people in a meeting because it's everyone's listening. You know, it's not me whispering over to Kim, you know, (laughs) what we watched last night (laughs) on Real Housewives (laughs) before this really important meeting. And so I think that it's really taken that personal connection away from us. But the meetings have gotten more efficient because it's more business oriented, which is good or bad. Yeah, I would second that. I think the travel time has been kind
2: of a nice boom, like not having to drive back and forth to lots of different meetings in different hospitals. But on the flip side, we were doing an educational offering, a leadership development course for junior faculty. And part of this course is usually that 10 to 15 minutes before it starts where they're getting coffee and getting to know each other and finding those interconnections. And we're realizing that that's completely evaporated. And now we present the same content, but they're not having those in-between times, like you described, to connect and get to know each other.
3: And as I am, as a person who is given a lecture, I am um, I find it very difficult because when you are sort of, I'm given a lecture to, I am the abyss, and you don't really get any, I am any feedback, everybody's on mute, and you don't always have any video screens, you know, looking back at you. And so I will tailor a talk, you if I see eyes are glazed over, I will change my talk, you know, based on the feedback I'm getting. And I I put a lot of jokes in my talks. And so I'll sort of give a joke over the talk and you don't get (laughs) any feedback at all. And it is a killer because you don't know, you know, is it falling flat, you know, are people, you know, at home, you know, they're laughing. And so, you know, I think as a lecturer, it is very hard to sort of adapt to this sort of, it's sort of, you know, new way of doing things. You know, I've sort of learned and it's getting better, but as the person you're giving the lecture, it's tough.
1: I also find, I don't know if you guys have noticed this too, but I have a really hard time with this gallery view because I have a really hard time like looking at myself the whole time during a meeting. Like, is my hair okay? Am I looking really weird? Am I sitting weird? So I think that's a really hard thing too. And I find that a little bit draining to that. You're basically like on show for the whole meeting too.
3: Hey, I'm often fine. I am. I'm also constantly looking at my background. Uh, You know, I've got two little kids at home. I've got dogs at home. (laughs) I'm always fearful of, you know, what's going to walk, you know, in the background behind me if I'm at a meeting. And so I'm always sort of looking behind me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So do you guys find that you're distracted during the virtual meetings? Do you find that your kids do come in a bunch or have you found like your little spot where you hang out during these meetings?
0: I mean, for me personally, you know, I live in the city and so the walls are thin. There's not much space. So I, most of the time I'm hearing my, you know, I have a one-year-old who's screaming in the background in the living room that you can hear, but kind of tucking away into the bedroom or living room if I can hide out somehow.
1: Do you guys find that you check emails or news or social media or things like that during some of the meetings? And if you do do that, do you find that that distracts you or are you okay with doing that kind of stuff?
2: Or shop or something like that, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> there are basically s- some studies that say that Zoom requires too much of our attention to effectively multitask. So basically, it's really hard to do a Zoom meeting along with all that other stuff just because we don't have those nonverbal cues. So we really have to like pay attention the whole time. Have you guys noticed that as well?
3: I'll I learn the hard way. I, am, I was rounding early in the morning. I'm at one campus and I was driving to the other campus. And I said, well, you know, log on to the Zoom meeting in between. And I was very focused on the meeting. And I you know, i did not pay attention to that. I was, I'm 65 on the interstate and I was driving into, I'm into a work zone. I'm at 55. And I didn't really pay attention until the blue lights came on behind me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had to log on to the meeting and say, hey, guys, got to log off here. I'm getting pulled over and the officer he I mean, pulled me over and he asked me, you know, why I was going too fast in a work zone, and I was just honest with him. I said, you know, I'm driving from one hospital into the other. I am on a Zoom call, and I was very involved in the call, and I said, honestly, I just wasn't paying attention. He was very nice. I mean, he gave me a warning, and he said he was logging it you know, in the system, and it ended up working out okay, but I for sure learned my lesson.
1: Sounds like that's a good one. Have you all found that you've modified your expectations associated with Zoom meetings? Do you find that you are expecting less out of them? And I know, Linda, you mentioned that a little bit briefly earlier, but um, are you able to still get the things that you need to get done over the Zoom meetings that you're having over this time?
0: When it comes to like business type meetings where you have a set agenda, I think we're getting through The nitty gritty of the agenda, but you still have those people where they're more extroverted, more outspoken, which would exist in most meetings, but you don't have the nonverbal cues that like clearly you're over-talking. And you should give this other person an opportunity to speak (laughs) or like kind of looking around the room and who's ever leading the meeting, you know, let's hear from Kim. What are your thoughts on this? And so I do feel like sometimes we're missing out on really crucial ideas and contributions to these meetings, because I think extroverts and more outspoken individuals, it's an easier platform. Um, where it was already hard for those of us who may not be, you know, outspoken individuals in public forums. I think it makes it even harder in Zoom because you're looking straight at people. One thing
2: that we've done to get at that is, or at least I've done is to make myself have a lot more silence on the meeting, a lot more silence than you would be comfortable with in a face-to-face meeting. There's this delay in Zoom where, People are actually not hearing you right when you think that they're hearing you, and especially in lectures, really being comfortable just waiting for 30 seconds, 45 seconds for people to process and that Zoom delay, and I think for me, that's really helped to give people that time either to type something in the chat or to have that Zoom delay on both ends and then participate, and that extra silence time has really helped, For me, you know, I've also found that sometimes shorter meetings have been really more helpful, like to really help people stay engaged for a shorter amount of time than maybe they could have stayed engaged for a longer meeting face-to-face where you can step out of the room, come back and kind of catch up whatever you missed on. There's no way to catch up on a meeting that's on Zoom when you step out of the room. You can't talk to the person next to you. Hey, what did I miss? So having shorter meetings has been pretty helpful.
1: So you guys mentioned that you spend sounds like a lot of hours per week on Zoom. Have you found any techniques that you think are helpful in improving this Zoom fatigue that we're all experiencing?
3: I'm say I do. I'm gonna I do part of the meetings on my laptop. I do part of my meetings on my phone. I'm. I don't always use video if so I don't think you know video is needed. I use video. I'm gonna use sound only. If it's a video that, you know, is more sort of a conference call and I don't have to look at slides, I just put the earbuds in, I to just sit back and I listen and participate and I don't actually have to look at the phone. And that is a break from having to be sort of visually engaged the whole time. And so I think it just I'm trying to mix it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, I thought
2: a couple of things have helped. I stand and walk often, even with telehealth visits as well. I found that, especially for longer visits, standing up or tough conversations, I found standing up has really helped me for those telehealth visits. Sometimes when I'm giving lectures, I stand up as well because sitting down in my chair doesn't give me the same feeling as I would have standing up. But breaks and boundaries are two other things. So for me, early in the pandemic, I was finding, oh, wow, I can fit so many more meetings in because I'm not driving to all these different places or having to even walk from building to building. And I found myself really stacking way too many meetings into a a short period of time. So I've really set some boundaries for myself that I only have sort of X number of meetings on Zoom in a day because it has really helped since I've limited that. I'm feeling less exhausted. And then I also noticed that after I've had a bunch of Zooms, I need to do something real active. It's like, I can go to clinic, I can do something active, but if I have some like critical thinking work to do, I'm kind of wasted after a Zoom meeting. So if I have to do creative work or writing, it's a lost cause after a bunch of Zoom meetings. And then just building in those breaks, if you know you have a long period of time or a lot to get through on Zoom.
3: I have also found that there is, you know, it's also sort of a knee-jerk now, you know, people wanna have a meeting or have a conversation. It's a knee jerk to zoom. And so I've been quick to sort of say, you know, let's just do this over a phone call. If you know it can be done over a phone call, then, you know, I don't think you have to do a zoom meeting, but but that has sort of been the knee jerk. Now, I am as to go to that. And so, you know, if it can be done over a phone call, I would much rather do it over a phone call. It's just much easier.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm not part of a residency or fellowship program, so I'd love to hear how you guys felt if you've been doing some of these interviews over the virtual platforms. Was it hard to pick up on the social cues, as you mentioned before, Linda? Did it feel awkward? And then the main thing I wanted to check on is, do you guys feel like it allows you to choose candidates that will fit well in your programs? That's one concern I think that lots of fellowship directors and residency directors would have is that the fit of the residents is so important because it's such a long period of time.
0: Yeah, we just did our first virtual interviews last week. We have our next set of interviews this Friday. We did 30 interviews. So what we did was several faculty in one room interviewing one candidate So there's at least that ability to have conversation with like my colleagues while talking to the candidate to make it more conversational instead of a interview. You know, my concern with the virtual interview process for our trainees is that we're relying on understanding fit of an individual based off their letters and who we know. So it's a lot of this kind of background calling, seeing who their letters writers were, who do I know at that institution? But where I feel like that hurts applicants are those individuals, mainly what we know from the literature, URM and women candidates who may not have those same mentorship and relationships with orthopeak departments. And so that's the group I'm most concerned about that will miss out on being considered as the fit because it was already hard enough for women and underrepresented minorities in medicine to be part of that fit in real life, being able to rotate. We've seen a lot of those biases. So I actually think these biases are going to be exacerbated through the virtual interview process.
1: That's a really good point. Thank you for highlighting that, Linda.
3: What we did on the front end, I am at sort of a massive Zoom meeting with myself and our two current fellows, and it was all of the candidates. Um, I'm in sort of one big room, and I went over all the nuts and bolts of the programs, all the details. You know, all the details of the programs and our case volumes and all the information on the program. And our goal being that on the day of the interview that their I'm our focus was on the candidate getting to know them and them sort of, you know, meeting us, you know, getting to, too, I know us. So that was sort of done, you know, about a week prior to all of our interviews. And then on the day interview, it was mainly a focus on the candidates and the candidates is sort of focused on us. I do agree. It was much harder to sort of pick up on you know, a lot of the cues that you get sort of in person. But I am—I'd say overall the day went I it went better than expected. I do hate that it's hard for the candidates to get a good overall sort of, you know, feel of a program if they can't actually you know, see the institutions and see the hospitals because one of the things that you know we sort of preach about our program is the team and you know I hate that can actually come to the hospitals and meet you know all the nurses in the clinic and the nurses in the OR and all the teams that, that we sort of interact with every day that you know we sort of include as part of our I am as a normal interview process and I hate the candidates, you know, aren't able to see all that.
2: I do think it's going to be really interesting to see how this turns out. On one hand, applicants are able to travel, so to speak, to more programs more easily without putting out all this money for hotels and plane trips and make changes at the last minute. But like you said, you know, they may never have even visited half of the cities that they've applied to. One thing that we've done, which has been interesting, is having a weekly Zoom happy hour for all the folks that interviewed that week, so that the residents could have some time without faculty around to ask questions, and that seems to be going pretty well. But I think it is really hard, like you described, to get a sense of both the applicant and the program on both in both directions. So this year is going to be quite interesting.
3: I, um, I know that I am on the residency side. Our residency program has been hosting a weekly, it's a didactic lecture. There is a resident that I am who sort of gives the lecture. And there's a faculty who sort of, I am as the sponsor of the lecture, I and mean, that is invited to, it's posted on Instagram, it's posted on Twitter, and sort of everyone is invited. And our I'm a Instagram page gives sort of a weekly bio on the resident who was given the lecture and a bio on the faculty who is the sponsor. And it's to help the applicants, you know, sort of get to know I'm a program a little bit better. I don't know how much it's helping, but I think everybody is making a good effort to I am help everybody get to know each program and the people in the program as best they can.
1: Since you guys have done this, uh, just briefly, do you have any tips or ideas for improvement? Like would you do anything differently next year if you have to do this again?
3: I'm in our program. My PA, I has sort of a side job. He does lots of videos and video editing and I has a company. And so I think next year if we do it, we plan to make a video of the program and the hospital and the people that sort of goes out to the applicants. And so they can see the hospital, you know, the people that we sort of you know work with every day and get more of a feel for the program. Nice.
0: It's a great idea. Cool. Yeah, I think that really helped with the social media aspect of trying to share some videos. We try to create like an Instagram page, Twitter account, just to share kind of our day to day, what it's like to be at our program, which I think has helped. I think it would be a really great idea, like what John mentioned, is highlighting some of our staff, because these are the people that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, not just the residents and the faculty.
3: We are a faculty of 35 or 40, and I feel very disconnected from all the faculty in my program. For the last six months, I feel like I'm in a silo, and I'm operating in a silo, I'm working in a silo, You I see them on calls. But, you know, there's not any of the water cooler conversations. You know, if you don't see them at conference, you know, at Grand Rounds of places, you don't have any sort of side conversations, you know, how's the family? So you feel very sort of, you know, disconnected from the group.
2: Yeah, I think we've it's, experienced that as well with all of our medical students and residents and fellows that, especially the new ones who just started in July, they, sure. you know, move to a new place and usually have a lot of social events and, They feel really isolated as well. It's been really challenging.
1: Yeah, we have isolation not only at home but at work. It's it's a it's a lot. So I'd like to move our discussion to the topic of pandemic fatigue. The New York Times described it as the exhaustion and impatience associated with this situation, the feeling that we have had enough and that we are over it. This pandemic started out with fear and concern for staying safe as we didn't know what was going on with the virus. We canceled our surgeries and clinics. We canceled our vacations, our concerts, birthday parties, other celebrations, and we stopped seeing our family and our friends. We thought we would just get through the summer, but that really hasn't proven to be the case. Kids and families missed out on the calendar marker of starting a new school year. And now as we head into the holiday season, the US is experiencing another huge surge of infections. Hospitals in many parts of our country are totally overwhelmed.
0: Yeah, I think what we found, you know, we over the last couple of weeks, right before Thanksgiving, Illinois had a pretty significant surge. So our hospital actually reevaluated what our bed space needs were for inpatient elective surgeries. So we had stopped inpatient elective surgeries and it's kind of a re-evaluation period weekly as far as what our bed numbers are to hospitalizations with COVID and reinstating some inpatient surgeries. Our practice already was, I'd probably say 30 to 40% outpatient surgeries, which we continued, but we're at high volume tertiary centers. So a lot of our patients who need revisions were put on hold or delayed. And most of our primary patients were, um, aren't candidates for outpatient surgery. And so we're slowly picking back up on doing inpatient surgeries on a more urgent basis, but our patients are scared. We have an older general group of patients who are scared to have surgeries. And if there's complications, you know, what the availability of resources are for them. And I I definitely share in their fear. Yeah, definitely.
3: I might echo Linda. I think a lot of our patients are Hey, I'm um, very nervous, and yes, they rightly so. I think in our clinics, we've seen probably fifteen percent, you know, drop. I uh, am in our patient volumes. We had a surge, you after know, Thanksgiving. You know, all of our ICUs are full. There, I has a shortage of nurses and you know, a lack of beds.
1: We're having a really big surge here in Arizona right now. And the main university hospital has stopped doing all elective procedures at this point uh, where we are allowed to do outpatient electives. And we weren't really doing these actually before we didn't have the infrastructure to do it before this pandemic, but they've started letting us do outpatient surgeries and have figured out how to make that work. So that's one thing that we're still able to do, but I do find, like you guys were saying, that my patients seem really, they're more anxious just at baseline. And I think a lot of that is just that they're isolated and they don't have a lot of their normal coping mechanisms as well. Have you guys noticed that also?
0: Absolutely. You know, there's restricted visiting hours, being able to come back and see their loved one, to pack you, just, you know, make sure they're okay. You know, they're relying on, you know, updates through text message and a phone call from the surgeon. But they're not getting that real time just comfort that their family member is okay.
1: So, we're testing everybody for COVID too. And I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I've had to cancel surgeries now because people have come back COVID positive who haven't even had any symptoms at the time. And I've also noticed that people have a widely varying definition of what is safe and what is quarantining and that's one thing that i think has been a little frustrating and a little bit hard have you guys had experience with that as well
2: one thing that we've seen kim is that you know this has been going on for 9 months now it started out in march we were sort of gearing up using all of our energy and now we're 9 months into this and i think for all of the healthcare system it's pretty exhausting we're all on heightened alert every time you walk into the hospital you're having to think about a whole lot of other things that you never had to think about before, you know, where's my N95, what's the risk of this patient, double, triple checking, do they have a fever, do they have their COVID test, all of these things that are just a new part of our lives. And I think we can look over the past nine months and see, you know, we had this initial wave of like doctors are heroes, they're so amazing, put them up on a pedestal. We're getting exhausted. And just really, I think that hero mentality is not super helpful for physicians right now because we are human and we don't, putting us up on a pedestal is not incredibly um, useful in the long term. And just recognizing that this is really hard work. And sort of, I think one of the things that we can do to sort of get through this time is have sort of realistic expectations of ourselves and not feel like we have to live up to these societal expectations of being a hero all the time and putting everything above ourselves and our families. And this is our second surge and vaccines are coming, but there's still going to be more work and it's going to be hard for the next you know year, probably, and just to really take care of ourselves so we can continue to be there for our patients.
3: You know, I've noticed a lot of patients having a very hard time with this. You know, it's been shown, you know, in, in this pandemic, you know, higher rates of anxiety and depression, and, you know, one of the reasons I went in a joint is our patients are happy. They're happy with their hips and they're happy with their knees. And it's been shown a link. And there is depression and anxiety. They're at lower rates of satisfaction, you know, after surgery. And I have seen in the last three, four months, lower rates of satisfaction, you know, after surgery. And you know, I suspect there's a link there just with sort of all that is going on in the world, you know, high rates of depression, high rates of anxiety. And I think just in general, And having surgery gets rid of your hip and knee pain. But I think people just are not as happy at baseline, I am after surgery as they normally are.
1: Yeah, I've definitely noticed that as well. I think they're just having difficulty in life right now. So it's really cutting across to all the things that we do as well. How are you guys managing the additional stress that we're under? Do you have any outlets or anything that you're doing in particular that you're enjoying or trying to relieve some of the stress that you're under at this point?
0: Me personally has been my Peloton, honestly, and being able to connect with people through Twitter that I otherwise, I, you know, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to meet John on this call today if it wasn't for Twitter, <laughs> you know, from an exercise outlet has really helped over the last few months and in, in making sure I'm carving out time and creating boundaries that this is my time to really enjoy these 30 minutes to an hour of exercise with people that you otherwise can't connect with. I
2: found that was interesting too. It's always been a goal of mine to really move or exercise or do something every day and my life always seemed way too busy. And somehow in the past six to nine months, I've been able to do that, even if it was just going on a 20 minute walk. And I've realized how important that it has been and kind of surprised myself that I've actually been able to do it. So sort of the isolation has led to, you know, a change that I think has really helped me cope personally.
3: Yeah, I'm getting very involved in Twitter. I met lots and lots of people. It's been a great outlet for me. Um, And just to meet lots of people, have lots of opportunities, I don't think I would have had otherwise. I am. Another coping thing is just here in North Carolina, the weather is great. And so I've been getting the kids out almost every day, every weekend, and just going, you know, like on like nature walks and on pirate hunts and just getting outdoors and just enjoying time with family. You know, I think what myself and a lot of colleagues have have sort of, you know, taken away from this, you know, sort of break, if you will, is, you know, Everybody sort of gets in the grind and you work, 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 work. And yeah. and this is sort of a force break for us. And it's good to sort of you know, take a little bit of breath of air and you know, actually enjoy your life a little bit, you know, and get out with family and you know, go on nature walks and just, you know, take a little bit of a break and a breather.
2: I think the question's going to be, you know, in 2021 and 2022, when things kind of, quote unquote, go back to normal, what are we going to keep from these breaks or these changes? And what are we going to let go of even long meetings or driving across town? Or what can we keep that is really serving us? And what are we going to let go of?
1: Definitely. So just wanted to mention a couple articles that I read said that at baseline, basically physicians tend to be smart, tough, and resourceful. And physician burnout is sometimes happening in these situations, given the stress that we're under at work and how things are quite a lot different. And physician burnout implies that it's an individual issue with a physician. Like if I were more resilient, I could manage this. And then Moral injury is something that I wanted to ha- have Dr. Rickard talk about a little bit, which basically takes into account extrinsic factors that are really out of our control as individuals. And I wondered if you could comment on that.
2: Mark. I think the moral injury for sh- absolutely applies to what we're experiencing in the pandemic. Like when you're trying to do the thing that you want to do the right thing for the patient and whatever system or um, situation is preventing you from doing that, it sort of goes against the things that you know to do as right as a physician and just adds this extra layer of distress that's sort of added on to the other distress that you're having. For example, if, you know, the hospitals are on divert and you can't get that hospital who you think, or the patient who you think has an infected joint into the hospital as soon as possible because there's so many COVID patients waiting in the ER, those kind of things add to the distress. And I think Beyond moral injury, there's also this element of the healthcare system that does add, we've all experienced it, the electronic health records, the growth of organized medicine and institutional medicine that has added layers of complexity that have really changed our lives and made uh, medicine more challenging in some ways. So those are definitely aspects of healthcare that contribute to a physician burnout epidemic. Really, I think I really liked what you said, Kim, that the worst thing we can do is put this on the shoulders of the physician. I think when we talk about physician burnout with that implication that there's something that physician has done wrong or something they just aren't tough enough that they've become burned out, that's like the worst implication I think that we can have. This is a complex situation where external forces, as well as potentially intrinsic things such as, you know, personal things that have happened in your life, but really taking away that shame or thought that there's something that the physician has done wrong. I think one of the things we can do through this pandemic is really take that to heart and offer ourselves some self-compassion and recognizing how hard this has been, and what a year this has been, and really adjusting our expectations, and really giving us us the space that we would give to our friends or colleagues. Like if you saw someone in a tough situation, give yourself that advice that
1: you'd give to somebody else. I think that can go a long way. It's a really great point. Thanks. The low buzz of stress that is present at baseline because of COVID is difficult to manage. Some days, I know I've had days at work where I'm not my best self. I think in healthcare, we have to show up for our patients and sometimes that's hard to do. At this point, many in healthcare are distressed. And I think we really have to hold space for ourselves to have those feelings and to be okay and to work on management of those as well with some coping mechanisms like exercise and like spending time with our family and friends in a safe way. I'd be
2: curious, Linda or John, if you have other things that you found that have been helpful. You know, just when we started this in March, we had no idea how long this would last and we all kind of geared up. And now we're looking at another year of a different healthcare system, other ways you've adjusted.
0: I think personally, from a practice standpoint, as you mentioned, Mari, the exhaustion of electronic medical record was already there, the day-to-day billing, then add in clinical documentation. We get those alerts all the time. And then you add in, am I safe? My husband and I are both physicians. I also worry about coming home and being exposed and what that would do to my child what would that do to my nanny who's a little bit older we don't see family because we don't have family here in Chicago and you know that's been isolating so I think for me personally I feel like I've been able to connect on a deeper level with my team who you know my physician assistant my nurse our residents our fellow to kind of get that shared social support and also just having like once a month where we could socially connect. And yes, it's over Zoom, or when it was nicer out, it was at a park. But just one day a month where it's just for me and my family and my friends where we can connect socially. Cause you know, we're humans and within our specialty at least within orthopedic, we're social people who want to be around each other, who wanna have fun. And so just being able to connect with my peers outside of work and we don't have to talk about COVID. You know, we have the reminder of the mask and the space, but like what else is going on in our lives and trying to create those relationships for
3: me, that's two things that you know, have been pretty helpful in the family side of things. My wife is also in healthcare. And we sort of, you know, early on, you know, being, you know, very driven and, you know, we have these goals that we have to meet, you know, hit our numbers and, you know, everybody had you know, this fear, you know, we're going to hit our numbers this year. And then about two, three months in, you know, I sort of said, those things are just, you know, out the window now, you know, and it it just hit me that those things for me, it just doesn't matter as much anymore because now it's more about, um, is everybody happy? Is everybody healthy? Is everybody coming home safe? And there's just not as much, I feel like at work, those pressures have just sort of, you know, gone away. It's more about taking care of patients and not really worrying about, you know, all of those issues. And from a team, you know, point of view, we sort of realized that, you know, we're all sort of in silos and not really having a whole lot of interaction in our arthroplasty team, because there was a fear that, you know, if we... We saw each other a lot, you know, if I got COVID, you know, I'd pass along to the whole team and the whole team would be down and then it would hurt the system. And so we, every week, you know, have sort of a weekly call with, you know, all the arthroplasty surgeons and some weeks it's just sort of a touch base. Hey, how's everybody doing? You know, how's the fam? How's everybody doing? And other weeks it's like, you know, here are the issues that, you know, we have to face this week and everybody kind of, you know, has a little bit of agenda and we all sort of, you know, talk through, you know, all the issues that are sort of, I'm, I'm facing everybody and then it, it has helped, you know, grow our team even stronger over these past six, eight months now. Um, And I think it has helped our team to sort of, you know, come together. I am even stronger as you know having these sort of weekly, you know, touch points for us.
1: The WHO's regional director for Europe, Dr. Klug, said, citizens have made huge sacrifices. It has come at an extraordinary cost, which has exhausted all of us, regardless of where we live or what we do. I really think that at this point, none of us are feeling fantastic, and I want to make sure that if you're listening to this, that you know that we're all struggling some days. Some days are okay, but some days are not.
2: Yeah, I think early on in the pandemic, I adopted the term sort of pandemic okay because so often people would ask you how you were doing and I couldn't really say I'm doing well so I would just sort of say like pandemic okay on those bad days and lately it seems like the good days are pandemic okay and there's more bad days where I I'm struggling it's a little bit of a roller coaster and it's hard to have more of those days where you aren't feeling the way you're used to feeling especially around the holidays and this time of year when we're often looking forward to you know family get-togethers and things that aren't happening this year
1: yeah definitely I just want to end with a comment that this year has really been unlike any other for most of us so I want to encourage you to be kind to yourselves and in closing I'd also like to thank all of you for participating and thanks for talking with me in this podcast and thanks also to AUKUS for supporting this for us
0: Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.